drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Howdy and welcome to Drive-By Cinema, the podcast where we watch the movies so you don't have to with my co-hosts Paul. And my co-host Richard. Welcome one and all. Paul, I'm doing this in American because for the first time it seems that there are more Amer- American listeners than UK listeners. America! There are more American listeners than there are other kinds of listeners, is that what you're saying? Yep. We've gone We've gone global. We've wow. gone stateside. We've gone stateside. Our transnational strategy has worked. Who did you, uh, who were you rooting for in the, su- the superb owl? I was rooting for the losers. Well, somebody's got to do it. The 49ers, or as I like to call them, the Niners. Did you watch the match? I did, until the... Halftime show. When was it? No. No, until... Was it... Well, it went to overtime, didn't it? I watched until the fourth, end of the fourth quarter. <laughs> and then I thought, gosh, I've got work in four hours. I better go to bed. But if we've got all these American listeners, do you think they're listening for some British twist on these reviews? So they might or, be a bit or some wisdom about their national football league, perhaps. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe they're looking for the quirky, quaint, twee kind of. Yeah, so perhaps we should, we should maybe turn up the Britishness. Yeah, yeah. Turn up the Britishness. That I mean, that really worked for British business, didn't it? Ask G's versus Google. Yeah. You know, if, <laughs> if, that, if, if, if you ever think British? about sure, branding, yeah. ask yeah, ask G's was British, wasn't it? Speaking of American-style corrections. Listener Adam pointed out that the reason that in the US they have mailboxes, he thought, was to make it easier to deliver because the front yards in American homes, American properties, are much bigger. So if a postman had to go up and down the, the front path to the door to deliver things through a mail slot, as they call them, or a letterbox, as we call them, every time, then their routes would take hours, wouldn't they? Yeah. The game that I never bought and I wanted to buy for my little, little computer back in the mid-80s was Paperboy. Oh, well, the Paperboys don't even get off the bike, do they? No, they, they just, just chuck launch it and break the window according to the computer game. <laughs> <laughs> don't think that's possible. But luckily, I didn't buy it because later on, I got a compilation sort of Firebird 199 game cassette with Paperboy on for my, for my ZX Spectrum. And it was absolutely, it was a terrible, terrible port because it was such a good arcade game. I don't know if you played it in the arcade. Paperboy. I did play it in the arcade, yes. Think about the creative, creative, like, the kind of creative dead ends that people came to in the mid 80s trying to come up with a new, new, new game that essentially was the same game. I mean, I think Trash Man was essentially a take on Paperboy, wasn't it? But taking out the trash. No, so no, no. But it was yeah. nothing like it. Trash oh. Man was, was excellent. Was it good? First of all, you're on foot. Second of all, it's really a sort of puzzle game. Because what happens is you have to go around. The back ginnel into the back garden, pick up the dustbin. Anybody not from the North England ginnel is like an alleyway. An alleyway. Some gardens would have dogs that would chase you and you have to go around one way or the other. Oh, it's very clever, trash, trash man. Get, getting back to Adam's point. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Sorry, Adam, I'm not here to blot out your point. Okay, so you say big front, front yards. Yeah. Now, it's certainly true that in the US, people's. It was once described to me that the size of your house was limited by your propensity to, to have to clean it. Whereas in the UK, uh-huh. the size of your house is strictly limited by how much you're prepared to pay for it, or able to pay for it, right? Yeah. Generally speaking, houses here are much smaller. They do have row houses in the States, which are what we call terraces, though, don't they? They do have row houses. That's just what many. I was going to say. Yeah. Although it's true that houses are generally bigger, have a larger square footage, certainly in most of the media that we see, suburbia looks pretty much the same, doesn't it? And I yeah. don't think 
the front yards are that much bigger. Well, they're kind of open. They don't have a fence, do they? They might have a Sometimes. pretend little white picket fence, but they don't have a real fence marking out their land like we do. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Certainly I mean, in the front yards, yeah. I mean, even the big, apart from like the multi-million pound sort of mansion kind of areas of the US, it seems to be that a, you know, a large and sumptuous detached house will just have uh, an open run along the driveway down to the road kind of thing, uh, with no fence between it, like an open lawn, which would be very rare. Any large detached house in the UK is probably going to have a wall around it or, or a large fence, isn't it? Adam also mentioned that if you're listening to the radio yeah. in a workplace, they have to get a PMR license. They have to, pay, have to pay for, for it. it. Yeah, in principle. I guess, I don't know who polices it, but you should let your workplace know that it's, it's not allowed. <laughs> it's not it's forbidden. <laughs> Think back. When were they going to find me? I could get them back with it. Like, you, you find me and I'll tell... <laughs> I'll tell the licensing authority about, about the two pence per week you should be paying for the, the radio. Yeah. I do feel quite American lately because I'm sort of addicted to Trump's endless tribulations in the courtrooms. It's incredible, isn't it? He's half a billion down. He's still carried on. It's incredible. <laughs> He's still carrying on insisting he did nothing wrong. And if he thought they were coming after him, well, now it's confirmed they are coming after him. So it's like, you know, <laughs> confirmation of all his worst fears, isn't it? Really? It's like, yeah, they've really got it in for you kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because he keeps showing utter contempt. For the legal process, the court and the judge. It's like, you can't believe it. It's like, why? He's, I, th- I think he generally can't believe. He's, he's at a loss of why it's all happening to him. I generally feel yeah. that that's the case. It's incredible. It's just a thorough lack of self-insight, isn't it, really? So this is two civil trials that we've had so far. <laughs> he keeps defaming the poor woman that he sexually assaulted. He did it again over the weekend. He said he's never met the woman, <laughs> nothing to do with her. <laughs> Oh, wow. She, she can go again. She can just go back to the courts. It's not going to get any better for him, is it? Then there's the fraud trial in New York, which, as you said, was $350 million or something, but with interest, yeah. it's going to be over $400 million. Half a billion dollars. So he's, he's, he's half into the hole. It's half a billion to the hole. And on top of that, his, his sons are not allowed to run his business anymore, are they? As part of the, uh, the, the whole kind of settlement deal, I think. So, yeah. But he's, it's okay because he's released special Donald Trump sneakers. Have you seen them? No. <laughs> Over the weekend, he went to a, a sneaker convention, got booed, and launched his his Never Surrender High Tops, which are a very tasteful all gold. I'm, I'm just not sure what kind of a universe we've entered at this point. <laughs> the audacity. I think they're about three $400 the pair. If you it's, want a pair of them. I mean, if he wasn't such a dangerous person, it's now become clear. You know, you'd have to have a sneaking aberration for such stubbornness, you know what I mean? A refusal to see to see sense. I believe he's also released a scent as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, people often wow. say that. Dizzying world of American <laughs> politics. It's it's almost incredible, isn't it? He's got now criminal trials coming up, starting with the false representation of his expenditure when he was actually paying a porn star to keep quiet. There is a difference here, okay? They don't require a preponderance or a forbearance of evidence. They require strict proof, don't they? Yes, that's true. There's the documents case where he was keeping documents against the Presidential Records Act. I think, honestly, that's an open and shut case, but it's heavily delayed because the judge in that case is strongly pro-Trump. So I see. Absolutely anything to delay. Well, I don't know. I mean, the last time he had a stacked judge jury, so to speak, he still got him. He still got found. <laughs> like he had, it was, it was, it was a bunch of Republican judges that he put on the on, on, on that bench that decided that he actually had instigated insurrection, wasn't it? 
Then there's the, well, that's the amazing trial, the RICO criminal conspiracy to overthrow the election trial, in which the defendant's team kicked up a fuss that the Attorney General, or the DA, whatever she is, was having a relationship with another lawyer on the prosecution side. I mean, if they don't work for the same company, then, well, I guess the lawyer would be very clear about this, wouldn't they, about, about what the potential, potential hazards are. Right, so and it's incredible he did all this in four years, though, isn't it, really? He just hasn't stopped, has he? Yeah, you'd find it difficult, wouldn't you, you'd think, to get yourself onto, like, <laughs> four criminal trials or something. This is the point. You've got to stay under the radar if you do that kind of stuff. If, you, if you're not under the radar, if, you, if, you, I mean, if you're running for president, people are going to be noticing what you're doing. I think previously, as a businessman... He could get away with he it. He could get away with it. He's got lots of real estate in his casinos, in his, in his Trump Tower, and he can get away with a lot of things and say a lot of things and do deals that aren't necessarily going to be detected. But when you're on a public stage, it's a different issue, isn't it, with eyes upon you? So, Bearing in mind, we're talking about a guy here who has more than once had a casino go bust on him. How do you do that? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's a casino. Because <laughs> just before last election, I was watching a lot of the a lot of the the, the hatchet pieces saying he wasn't a good businessman. And actually, I do remember now thinking, well, maybe there's some truth in that because he did manage to make a casino go bust, you know what I mean? Because his one claim is, I'm a businessman, not a... Well, it used to be, I'm a businessman, not a politician. I know how the real world works, kind of thing. Hey, Paul, do you think we could review an American film this week, then? I think we should do. A new American initiative here. Do you have any corrections apart from mailboxes before then? No, no. I think Adam has dealt with our major errors and things to point out. Very saliently. Time for some music. Here we go. So, Paul, what kind of animals are we dealing with this week? Could be owls, or it could be foxes, or it could be other kinds of nocturnal animals, Richard. How did this film come about? I don't know, but it's based on a novel. So, a book first. Yeah. A novel, yes, called Tony and Susan by somebody called Austin Wright. Yeah, in 1993. And I was thinking, I was watching this before I found this fact out, I was thinking, it's got real 90s vibes to this, this, this whole movie. Had some real nineties vibes, and then they, yeah, they, they they scripted it and they got a screenplay out of it, and it's become a movie by Tom Ford. Tom Ford, a director. And now his history is, I think he's a designer, like a clothes designer. Oh, wow! I think he's worked on films in the wardrobe department before. I think this is his first directing role for a movie. There were some interesting wardrobes here. My understanding is that he kind of recused himself from the whole wardrobe thing for this film. So he did leave it to a, a different team. Well, there's there's a kind of a uh, very absolutely fabulous either assistant or, or co-worker of one of the colleagues who's wearing some very constructed black and white dress with, with pieces added to the front of it. I was reminded of the way that Toya Wilcox used to dress because <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Toya Wilcox on her YouTube channel where she does on her kitchen table every Sunday morning. She gets on her kitchen table and she's often in very revealing kind of like semi-naked kind of clothes but for YouTube she covers bits up with masking tape and the camera's always in a provocative angle looking up to her and she's got a fan off screen it's like blowing her hair in kind of video kind of style <laughs> and it's a prisoner her husband is sat there with a guitar and they just her, strum her out her husband is famous isn't he I don't know what his name is but they just strum out like old hits like and have a blast of a time it's kind of it's essential watching essential viewing I think Toy it on a Sunday did she start that during lockdown then? yes 
It isn't quite cringe. I think it's quite viable in a sense because many people watch it just for the cringe factor. It's authentic. Her husband is Robert Fripp. That's right. Yeah. Robert Fripp. The founder and guitarist of progressive rock group King Crimson. So, yeah, it's interesting stuff. She can really sing. Yeah, I'd encourage you to go and watch it. But she used to wear that kind of uh, costumery, didn't she? Avant-garde, very new romantic costumery. Huge aside there, let's get back onto this movie. So while Tom Ford was not directly involved with the costume wardrobe for this movie, I think the fact that he is a designer means that the whole film is quite designery. Mm-hmm. It's quite stylishly presented. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, all of the actors are like top rung in attractiveness, aren't they? Yes, definitely. What kind of film is this? Is this a romance? A drama? It's actually termed a neo-noir. Neo-noir. Yeah. Okay. It's termed a neo noir. I don't know what that means. This film starts before the titles with an opening sequence of naked obese women dancing in slow motion. Yeah, it was really unfortunate because I was in a hotel. <laughs> on the plane. Right. No. I was in a hotel, sat on my own, and I did a tape. <laughs> and what you do when you sat on your own, surrounded by families and couples? You know, in a hotel. Get out your phone so you don't look like you're like you're like you know, like like you're a sore thumb. I thought, oh, well, I've got to review this in a few days' time. I'll tell you what, I'll, you know, I'll press play and then consume it in the next 48 hours. And then it was it's a new phone, right? Okay. Like, I could see the waiter coming over to me, right? And the volume was up. And luckily, I don't think they were screaming or anything like that. But it was just... And I couldn't turn it off because I just... It was different buttons to my old phone. And it was there on the table. I just turned it over. <laughs> Face down whilst he took my order. And, you know, it's awful. As the dance and the music comes to an end, we find ourselves in an art gallery. And this seems to be sort of a video installation as part of a gallery opening for a Mm -hmm. particular exhibit, right? Suzanne's, I guess. Suzanne's, she's organised all the time. Is that right? Yeah, the main character here, played by Amy Adams. And the ladies that we saw dancing are all lying on plinths face down. (laughs) In the wow. Okay. Presumably, actually, really lying there, not hyper realistic. No sushi is being consumed. Weirdly, (laughs) they missed a beat there, didn't they? (laughs) Now, have you ever had a thing for large women, Richard? No, it doesn't do anything for me. Doesn't do anything for you. No. There's a whole big booty trend, though, isn't there? Following the Kardashians and stuff like that. I don't get it. You don't get it. No. Okay. Just checking. There you go, each to their own and everything. There's somebody out there for anybody, isn't there? Don't we cut now to Susan's home where she's watching a kind of like opera chat show, but it's a bit, just a bit loose in terms of what they're talking about. They're well, talking. she drives in oh, to okay. her, and this is another very modernist house, isn't it? It's all Beautiful. brick concrete. Yeah. And it's got sculptures out in the garden, including one of those Coons-like dog things, like balloon yeah. dog ones. Obviously, the home Money. of an artist or... Someone in the art world. It's immediately apparent that she's very successful. She's got a package, which apparently is from her ex, mm-hmm. a guy called Edward. Edward Sheffield. Yes, she's Sheffield. got a butler. Edward fucking Sheffield. Yeah, a writer. <laughs> she's got a butler who helps her unpack it and reads the front page. Now, he's saying, who would you like to do the weekend shift? She says, you could all go off for the weekend. So she's very indulgent. Obviously, has far too much money than sense. I want to go to the beach, maybe, for a holiday with hubby. But he reads the package for her. I don't know why, because she's got a paper cut. Is that right? Yes, yeah. I mean, that's just the, the hazards, isn't it, of... Uh, being rich. Of being rich, is you might get a paper cut. <laughs> so her husband is played by Arnie Hammer, who's going to pop in briefly. We're not going right. to see much of him. 
This package is a novel, a manuscript for a novel, isn't it, that Edward has written. Uh-huh. He's asking her to read it and tell him what she thinks of it, uh-huh. as you do. You send your novel to your ex, don't you, and get, get them to read it. That's, that's how you oh, do it. Oh, John, was that what you thought of me? Oh, gosh. All right. Sorry. No. <laughs> no. I don't know. I think you do send it to people in your past, Richard, if you've written oh. a novel. Oh, so this this is speaking to you, is it then? Really? I, I mean, I, I know three people who've written novels. Four oh. people, including myself. Right. Two of them have taken the vanity publishing route, but uh-huh. one of those persons just sent it to everybody she knew, like, and she left some in like those little telephone book libraries that they have. <laughs> and, so, and then she turned on Facebook. She's like, "Oh, I just left another one, another book in this nook and cranny by this wall, in case people might want to discover it." Because she printed a thousand of them and she sold not on Amazon, you see. So she had to do so something. What's to- your book about, then, Paul? My book was about atomic aardvarks. It's a children's book. (laughs) And uh, the idea was to teach adjectives. So we said, hey, let's just call the aardvarks, like, adjectives beginning with A. So we have, like, ace aardvark, amazing aardvark, atomic aardvark. And let's do the next animal with uh, adjectives with B, like, beautitious badger and stuff like that. But we never got around to any other animals. We just wrote a whole book about aardvarks and adjectives beginning with A. Which kind of isn't very extensive, is it? Oh, well, it leaves the way open for 25 subsequent novels, doesn't it? It does, does it? Oh, gosh, I mean, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Now, her husband is telling her that he has to go away for work. So he's mm. not going to be around. And we later see them going to an event that Michael Sheen is hosting, apparently. While the wives are talking about psychopharmacology and stuff and what ADHD medicine they're on, etc., He's being very flirty with her, isn't he? He's saying, let's talk about your opening. <laughs> My favourite subject. <laughs> right. Was that flirting? I think so, yeah. Oh. But it's not very okay. subtle, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> you were probably ordering at that point, were you? Rather flustered. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was ordering during the Naked Women. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So, second husband, second husband is called Hutton. He said, who the hell's Edward? And she's like, he's my... No, he knows who Edward is. He's like, that's your first freaking husband. But he didn't know He didn't know he was a writer. She said, yeah. I mean, Edward's a prep school teacher now, but he's also a writer. She's kind of defending her first husband, isn't she? And Hutton, her second husband, her second husband seems to be significantly younger than her. Would you agree? Seems that way, yeah. 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 Susan seems to be kind of jaded with the art world, doesn't, doesn't she? Who wouldn't? The pretense and the... I mean, here we get some absolutely fabulous moments without comedy, don't we, really? It's very ab-fab, but it's just depressingly kind of like, this is how vapid it all is, and it's not funny, is it? It is depressing. I just want to say, compared to the Chinese depression Arama film that we saw, yes. this is sadder and more this depressing. This is really, really <laughs> empty, yeah. It's horrible. <laughs> and a really horrible empty ending that I guess we'll get to. One of the problems this film has, and maybe it's less of a problem in a book, maybe you might think... Perhaps this won't translate to film so well. But really, this film is about Susan reading the manuscript of this novel. Yes, and reacting to it and flashbacking <laughs> through it. Yeah. Now, how quickly do you realise that what we were seeing on screen was actually mise en scène, was actually dipping into a second world? I mean, fairly quickly. Fairly oh, quickly. Oh, took me about five minutes, I think. In fact, until she closed the book and we snapped out of the, the second kind of representation. Yeah, I wish that had been signposted a little bit better. Susan is reading this book by her ex, and she's sort of projecting... I don't know that she's projecting herself into the, into the scene, but she's certainly projecting Edward into the story. Because it's the story of this guy, whose name, I think, is Tony in the story, isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
just to be very clear, we're now explaining the fictional novel in this fictional adaptation of a book. <laughs> and she's reading it, going to bed. Her husband's gone <laughs> off to business, okay? And now we dip into the story and it kind of comes up on screen as she's reading it. So we've got this guy. Tony Hastings. Tony. But she's seeing him portrayed by her ex, The guy Edward. who wrote the book, yeah. I don't know how we know what he looks like. I can't remember how they tell us that. But we know immediately, oh, that looks exactly like her ex. So she's imagining him as the lead in this novel. Yeah. Is that a natural thing to do? I don't know. I mean, he could be writing a James Bond novel, couldn't he? Later on in the movie, earlier in their relationship, she says, you've got to write novels from your own perspective. So I think her assumption is... That he's taken her advice to heart. That he's taken her advice, and this is heartfelt and, and from the heart, so to speak. Okay. So Tone is driving along the Texas open open highway, yeah, with daughter India and wife Laura. They're on a road trip to I don't know where. One thing I will say, is for a good half of the movie, I thought Laura was being played by Amy Adams. That's understandable, but she's not. She's not. She's not. It's- I checked the actors in the yeah. first world and the second world, and it's only it's only Tony Stroke Edward that is a replicant, so to speak. No, so Laura is played by Isla Fisher. Who might or might not be big in Japan. We don't know. We've not checked that out. <laughs> the upshot is that they're both very beautiful, red-haired women. Oh, okay, Richard. It- not against the gingers this week. Just male gingers he doesn't like. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's transformation, that's growth on Richard's part. Just wait until Dune 2, Paul. That's all we'll say. Well, I think we discovered that the Harkonnens are not ginger in this correct interpretation. I don't know, they're the all bald, aren't they? The ones we see are all bald. It could be ginger. They'll probably shave their heads because of that, don't they? There is no reference to gingerism <laughs> in, 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 in the original novel, I don't think. So the family are driving at night in, in their, a Merc, in a barge, yeah. not quite. It's America, so we can't call it a landlord, but we can call it a barge. It's a classic Merc, isn't it? Yeah, beautiful. I don't remember what model it is. There is something about cars from that era. They just, they just look beautiful, don't they? We know that there's no cell phone reception because India is annoyed by the lack of cell phone reception she's experiencing. And as they're driving along this dark road, middle of nowhere, they start having this sort of... Tussle. A disagreement with a muscle car. Now, this evoked quite a lot of classic chase-by-trucks, chase-by-cars movies. What's the Spielberg one called? Was it called Truck or something? No, isn't it called Juggernaut? Juggernaut, yeah. So I love this. I mean, this was in the dead of night. At this point in my notes, I've got, it's the novel. I think I realised at this point that we were actually in... In the novel. The (laughs) same world as, as we'd started. Okay. Inside this muscle car, there are a bunch of rednecks, three guys. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they, they end up sideswiping the Mercedes, don't they? Yeah, they've been passing the car off. in front, and then Tony had pushed past them and nudged them, and then, yeah, sideswiping and taking him off the road. Is that right? Yeah. These rednecks get out of the car. They start sort of striding over menacingly. They're Maybe insisting. they put a knife to one of the tyres as the inspector. No, not yet. Not yet, not yet. It builds up to that. Initially, though, they're insisting that they have to stop, exchange details, mm-hmm. report the accident. At some point, a cop car even passes by, but it's got its lights and sirens on it. It's going too fast. It's headed it somewhere, doesn't yeah. stop. I don't know that they knife the tyre, do they? But it, it has been... It's punctured because of the side swipe and the running off the road. Maybe, but there's a kind of... I think what they capture is it's really... It's a really good take on that sardonic kind of laconic commentary that people that they real that, that realize they have absolute power at play. Do you know what I mean? Like it could have been they just slash a child, just giving phone explanations. All the idea we've got to go to the police because you were trying to run away from an accident. Tony wasn't. They rammed him, didn't they? 
And later on, they say, well, wait a minute. How do we know you're not going to drive off after we fix your tyre car thing? Yeah, so they're offering to go to a place they know that can fix the tyre. But the arrangement they come to is they'll take the mother and daughter in their car. Yeah. Tony has to stay with another of the redneck guys. But it's all kind of sleazily done. There's an absolute power advantage here. There's no... I mean, they can just say what they want to. They're just making excuses to get their way on. So obviously Tony's concerned that his women, if you like, under his protection, in a primal sense, are obviously under threat here, aren't they? But what choice has he got? Susan stops reading at this point, so we're snapped out of the... Thank God. The, yeah. the thrilling crime drama. And she calls her husband Hutton, which, let's face it, is a stupid name. It's clear that he's landed after his flight. Mm-hmm. It also becomes clear to anyone listening on the call that he's with a woman. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's got to his hotel, and it seems he's with a mistress. It's quite clear what's happening, isn't it? Susan carries on reading. <laughs> and we're back now with Tony driving with this one of these three rednecks. So he's in the muscle car. So they took his Mercedes with the damaged tyre. So he's driving with Lou, who's yeah. been told by the ringleader, who I guess is called Ray, to, I don't know, drive him out into the tumbleweed, basically. Yeah, yeah he directs him down this dark dirt road. No lights and stuff. Until it comes to no further, yeah. He forces him out of the car, and then he drives away, stranding him there. Tony starts walking back, but he's being careful about it, and a car approaches, so he hides. It's his Merc. He sees Lou and Ray in the Merc. They get out, they have a discussion about where is he. They call for him. Sensibly, keeps his, he keeps his head down, doesn't he? He says, you want, if you want to see your wife and daughter again, yeah. But eventually, he stays hidden. They, get, they can't find him. He's hidden in the dark. They drive off and leave him there. And as the sun is rising, he's made his way to a... A metalled road, is that what they call them? Tarmacked yeah. road. And he finds his way to a roadside dwelling and asks to use the phone and winds up talking to the sheriff. Lieutenant Graves comes along. Found your car, but he ain't found no wife, no daughter. Yeah, he meets Detective Bobby. Bobby says, why didn't you go to them when they said that his wife wants to see him? And I think he asks him, did these guys have guns as well? Mm-hmm. And they didn't have guns, did they? No, they didn't, didn't have- did they have tire irons? They, oh, they they tried to look for a, a spare or made a pretense of looking for a spare, didn't they? So they might have had tire irons at one point, but they certainly didn't have guns, or we didn't see any. Anyway, they retrace the steps. They wind up going down the same track. Of course, as I think we expect, mm. they find like an old couch lying by a shack, and there's two corpses on the couch. It's obviously his wife and daughter. Flashback. We cut now to Susan... <laughs> She's obviously really entrenched and sort of delving into this novel. She calls her daughter just to make sure her daughter's okay. Her daughter's like, Mom, it's Sunday morning. Can you let me go back to She's bed? in bed with her boyfriend, isn't she, her daughter? Mm. Naked as well. We now see a flashback, not to the novel. She's now reminiscing about her time with Edward, isn't she? Edward, yeah. She's on the street in New York. He's clean-shaven. I think we'd seen it's him in the... so 90s. <laughs> yeah. It's like, now watching this, I understand why Friends made sense back then. Like, they really captured the way people behaved in the 90s. Yeah, but we know that Friends is nostalgia for a time that never existed, Paul. It is, yeah. yeah. But I think it captures like the way that particularly females who wanted to get on with their life presented themselves to males kind of thing. It's just females don't kind of mask like they used to in the 90s. The way that she talks to him is very... It's all, I wouldn't say submissive, but it's very much attuned to his emotional needs, isn't it? Almost like she's looking after a toddler kind of thing. We learn that this is before they got together, this memory. And they're reminiscing about their high school days. It seems that they were at high school together. Mm-hmm. She's talking about his high school best friend, who she says was gay and had a 
big crush on him. Oh, and he I, says, thought, I yeah. wasn't listening to Kev. I thought it was her brother. He's just his best friend, yeah. I think it was his best friend, yeah. Right. Well, it'd be weird if his brother had a crush on him, wouldn't it? Not her brother. <laughs> my, my imagination was like, he came around to see her, but actually the brother was kind of there, hanging around the kitchen island. You might be right. I, I, no, I it's probably I it his best, best mate, friend. to be honest with you. Uh, he claims he didn't know, anyway, at the time. But he hits on her over that dinner. Obviously, that was, I guess, the start of their... But we learned that her parents are quite tyrannical and quite conservative and virtually disowned her brother. In the novel now, she started reading again, apparently. And the cop is explaining the cause of death, that the wife was struck on the head with a heavy object and the daughter was suffocated. It's Detective Andes or something like that. But Detective Bobby, isn't it? Oh, he's, well, his surname's is it Bobby Andes. I don't know. Oh, maybe so, yeah. yeah. Or Andes, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, so I, I I missed. Somebody got suffocated. Somebody didn't. What happened? Yeah, the daughter was daughter was suffocated with a broken arm. Wife yeah. struck on the head. Apparently, they were both obviously sexually assaulted, as we we can assume. Their prints are all over the car and on the trailer where where they were dumped. We flash back again now to Susan speaking to her mother. Her mother is criticizing her life choices, her career, and her lover. But it's obvious her mother is really, really well off. Like the pearl set is to die for. They're real pearls, and it's just a gigantic set of pearls that she has. You know what I mean? And her mother's line of argument is that this Edward guy is too weak. Susan is saying, oh, I prefer to think of him as sensitive. Do you think really rich parents have a right to be critical because of how much money they're going to give you? <laughs> I think it gives them a bit more right to be critical, doesn't it, than normal parents? Would you, or would you completely disagree with that statement, Rich? I mean, anyone's got a right to be critical. The question is, is that a good way to parent? Is that a nurturing and supportive way to parent anybody? It depends what kind of criticism, doesn't it, I guess, how it's delivered. Parents want the best for their children. That's understandable. But on whose terms and whose value judgments, yeah. When, at any time in the grand history of humanity, mm-hmm. has a parent or anybody telling a young person some advice, has that ever worked? Whether or not the advice later turns out to be true or not, it's never been accepted, has it? No, you, you, you have to make your own mistakes, don't you, before the wisdom is revealed to you. I guess the value of advice is that when something bad happens, you could recognise from the advice why it might have happened. Mm. Whereas somebody didn't have that advice, we'll just be superstitious yes. about it, right? I guess that's the, the Some only parents still have to be critical at times, don't they? Anyway, she makes some decent points. He has no money, he's not driven, he's not ambitious, and he's too weak for you. She's basically saying he won't be able to provide for you, you won't be able to live in the style that, to which you've become accustomed. And finally, he's too sensitive. Okay, now, did you know that in French, the word for sensitive is sensible? Which Sensible. Sensible. And I have to agree <laughs> with this. If you are at all sensible, then you must have a level of sensitivity. Her warning, her parting shot, is that we all eventually turn into our mothers. I suppose she's saying, one day, you'll be just as greedy and venal as I am. <laughs> and a sensitive man won't mean anything. <laughs> won't cut it for you, will it? No. Now, I've written the word Steve Adams, but I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. Steve Adams? Should we look it up on, uh, on <laughs> no, Google? No, I don't know. I'm sorry. What's all that about? He's a professional basketball player. No, no. <laughs> okay, so let's ignore what I just said there. I've written a big question mark. How is this intertwined? I wasn't really getting how the novel and her state of mind... Oh, really? I really? didn't get the echo here at all, no. Really? It's almost as if the two have no relationship to one yes. another whatsoever. Like, well, I, I, apparently it's supposed to be deep echoes. I couldn't recognise them at all, apart from the fact she imagines the novelist to be the guy in the novel. What parallels are there between her her life and this? She hasn't been murdered. Her daughter's okay. I think there is a little bit of a one. Her new husband hasn't raped her or stolen away her daughter, so I don't get it. <laughs> like, 
Maybe he's right to sanctity or that kind of thing. Go on, Rich. You make a case for it. I will shortly. But back in Nocturnal Animals, the novel in the film, mm-hmm. Tony's being asked to identify a suspect mm-hmm. that they've got a print match on. He's gone to Texas to meet Bobby, the cop, to see a suspect they picked up in a, in a lineup. This is about a year later, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a time later. What's happened is some guy called Turk has been killed in a botched robbery. Is that right? I think it's right. And they pull the other guy in on the ID parade for a stick out of lookout. This is the guy he drove in the muscle car to ditched him in the middle There's of the There's no doubt it's the guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. By the way, I love this Texan-Mexican detective. He's great. Oh, uh, yeah, played by Michael Shannon. I think. There's so much... Texacana involved in this. There's so much kind of iconography involved in his behaviour, from lighting up cigarettes to his demeanour and that kind of stuff. He's a standout character, no question. And he tries to sweat Lou, doesn't he, when he's identified. Mm -hmm. He really sort of threatens him. Definitely a a, a machismo kind of guy, isn't he? Now, so, new scene, back in the real world, or the fictional real world. Well, the art world, so I don't know how real it is. Susan is at work. She's had trouble sleeping. She's not sleeping well. Her PA is discussing her ex and his book with her. Her PA is called Sage, I think. Is that right? I think so. She's only in one scene, and we've mm-hmm. seen it's it quite a funny scene. Like... It's ab fab. Uh, I think it's the one like <laughs> comic moment in the whole movie. And an artist shows up and is showing her nanny cam on her phone. Oh, sorry, it's the artist, not her PA. Okay. Oh, she's an artist with you. Okay. And as she's looking at her phone with this nanny cam on it, mm-hmm. she briefly sees an image of some guy. Is it the guy from the novel? So it's someone yeah. from her imagination. Ray, I think, about to attack the baby. Obviously not in real life, but in her imagination on the nanny cam. And she drops the expensive phone, doesn't she? Yeah, and it smashes. That's right. So at that moment, she says, can I pay for the phone? She says, no, it doesn't matter. There's a new one coming out next week anyway. So, <laughs> so, so they're vapid, these people. This novel is getting affecting her so deeply that she is seeing the characters she's imagining in her insomniac hallucinations. And why isn't she sleeping? Is she worried about a marriage or she's just so into the book? She knows that her new husband, her second husband, is cheating on her. She'd been saying that there were difficulties at the start of the the film, hadn't she? So it was obvious that they were in kind of a rut. He doesn't want to go to the beach beach hut for vacation. So it's obvious that they're kind of semi-estranged, aren't they? The fact that he revealed that he was with a woman didn't... Well, he knew he revealed the fact... That he was had a mistress in New York, wherever it was, but didn't really wasn't too concerned about it. Yeah, so he he obviously doesn't have any feelings left for her. Huh? Would that see you spent you spent a lot of time thinking about this relationship, Paul? It's good because I didn't. Would, would that I mean would that sort of affect your sleep? Maybe potentially. I don't know. Back in the novel, this time, <laughs> Bobby is taking Tony to see a guy. Can I just called say Ray. there's more of the novel than there is Susan, isn't there? Really, I think that's true. Yeah. yeah. There's more of the the novel within the book than there is the real world in the book. Bobby is taking Tony to see this guy called Ray, a known associate of the the Lou character. But he's apparently got a clean criminal record. Apart from a dropped rape charge. Oh, yeah. And the copper has heard that he's got like a little shack out out on the sticks that maybe won't use anymore now the heat's on him. But he thinks he's pinned him. They go to doorstep him at this shack. Bobby expresses a movie cough, doesn't he? So we know there's something bad going to happen to to him <laughs> and his health. They pull him out and they get him in the car and Tony drives as Bobby asks him questions and Ray's denying everything. They're actually in the Mercedes that they'd used a year ago. So, But they take him to the scene of the crime and Tony loses his shit and demands to know what We get a brief losing shit still, don't we? I want to yeah. know what you did to them. I want to know how it felt. I wanted to know if they knew what was going to happen to them. Answer me, you fucking bastard. 
Yeah. Or something like that. He shoves him, and the guy falls back handcuffed and whacks his head on the iron bedstead. Mm-hmm. Back now into the normal world. And we flash back into an argument with Edward. Think so, aren't we? That's right. She's oh. arguing with Edward because she's reading his work at the time and criticising it. And she's trying to push his ambition, isn't she? She's saying that he can do better, and this is where she's giving him advice about writing, which I'm sure is very welcome. And around this time, I think she sees the dashing Hutton somewhere or other, catches her eye. Yeah, her, her advice is really quite patronising, isn't it? Back in Nocturnal Animals. Can we get novel. back in Nocturnal Animals? Because it does sound more interesting than Susan's worries. We, uh, get, Bobby. We, get the, we get the delivery of Bobby, he's coughing, he's got something, because he's going to be dead in a year, isn't he? He's got lung cancer, yes, and the prospects aren't good. I was really reminded of one moral, is never mess with eight-year-olds with terminal cancer. Because uh, they'll fuck you up. Houses. Well, there's, there's one that wasn't They've got really, nothing to lose. There was the one in the UK where they were driving down the other side of the motorway, weren't they, the caravan? What? <laughs> yeah. Just, <laughs> I, we never actually got told how many collisions there were, because I think they try to suppress it in case... We had other eight-year-old cancer victims copycatting it. Yeah. But what a way to go out! Seventy miles an hour down the wrong down the wrong side of the freeway with a caravan. With a caravan in tow. I mean, why would you want? Don't a mess caravan with them. With do not mess with all people with cancer. <laughs> they just do not care. They probably can't feel anything anyway. Do you know what I mean? Your pain is going to be more than their pain. Well, our cop Bobby has got a daughter apparently, but he hasn't told her, and asks Tony, "How serious are you about getting justice done?" And this is what he's saying, isn't it? Clearly, he's got nothing to lose. Are you willing to go outside of strict procedure on this? <laughs> when he says that, you just know that it's going to be a shit show. It's going to be quite some distance outside of strict procedure, is what he's saying here, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Flashback now to Susan, who is now breaking up with Edward. And then we get quickly back into the novel. You'll be It's more of fractures. There's all kinds of gaslighting going on either side. Like, they're both kind of like, oh, if you really love me kind of stuff and all that kind of... All those kind of really fake arguments about manipulating other people's feelings. Quite ugly in the 90s, wasn't it? Sorry, anyway. And then we're straight back into Nocturnal Animals, the novel, where they've captured Ray at gunpoint, so, and yeah. they take him to a shack in the middle of middle of nowhere. And they round up Lou as well, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I'm not sure why Lou gets it in the neck, because, I mean, it seems that he was... I mean, okay, he's joint venture, but I'm not sure he knew what was going to go on with the murder, did he? He was just like... He was an accomplice, wasn't he? He was an accomplice, yeah. But they're both cuffed on the bed. Bobby's suggesting to Tony to just killing them right now, doesn't he? He plays a bit of Russian roulette with the quite effectively with the gun. Lou just cracks up and starts blobbing, doesn't he? Bobby needs to go and bar from the chemo that he's having. And he gives the gun <laughs> to Edward, saying, keep an oh. eye on these guys. And of course, as soon as that happens, the two of them see that Edward is maybe not, not a hard-bitten cop handling a gun. They decide to bolt, don't they? Yeah. As Bobby comes out, taking the gun back off Edward, Lou is running away and he shoots him in the back. In the back, yeah. But Ray has escaped, hasn't he? Yeah, now, now Bobby says, I'm really sorry I had to do that. And Tony says, I'm not complaining. I want them dead. We know what's going to end here. It's it's not going to end nice, is it? But Lou is just lying on the ground, isn't he? Wounded. Yeah. And Bobby just shoots him in the head. Yeah. He executes him. Now it's flashback. Oh, now it's a world. flashback to real world where Susan is at an abortion clinic and she's just sort of emerged and Hutton is in the car driving her, sort of helping her out. And I think we're given to understand that it must be Edward's child that mm-hmm. she's had an abortion for. Hutton is there to see, to support her. But as they sit in the car, having just come out of the clinic, Edward is standing there watching and he's obviously seen what's happening and he obviously knows where they are. Wow. Back in it's not- hunting season, isn't it? It's duck hunting season now, back in the desert. 
Tony's had a bit of a crisis, sort of breaking down and regretting that he didn't protect his family. Yes. And this is the only connection, isn't it? This is maybe why she's seeing Edward in this role, because Tony is, like, not the go-getting sort of alpha male protecting his family. He's the Mm. sensitive one. I think this is the very weak parallel between the two stories. It's the only one, isn't it? Yeah, because the abortion, the baby dying, is connected with Lou, the hoodlum dying. So, I mean, there's no synchronicity there, is there? (laughs) No. As you say, Bobby and Tony decide to split up. They're going to go in both directions down the dirt track, I think. Well, they know they're going to find this guy, because, I mean, where can he go? He's not got a car. Bobby hands Tony a gun, and, of course, in due course, Tony finds Ray hiding in a shack down the road. Ray is goading Tony over his weakness, and that he won't won't be able to shoot him. Not before we get a mission from... A progressive admission from Ray about what happened. What he did, yeah. What he did. Yeah. And at first he starts off it was an accident. I quite list this bit of bit of sort of on the edge Jack Nicholson acting here is like I didn't mean to do what I did, it's just how they spoke to me. People can't speak to me like that. It was an accusation that gives me the right to do what I did. Okay. I'm not sure what they said to him. But it's obviously he's a bit unhinged and maybe has a relatively low IQ. The actor playing Ray, Aaron Taylor Thomas, we've seen before, of course. Because he was in Tenet. He was Ives, the sort of the captain of the, the security services. Oh, I remember what the accusation was. The daughter was afraid. She said when they were first stopped by the, by the Hulums that, are they going to rape me? And he took that accusation as an insult and therefore gave him the right to rape her. Oni Swaki Mali Ponce. It's the royal family's thing. Pardon? Evil be to those that think evil, I think. But I'm not sure that's a robust legal defence for what he did, to be honest with you. Obviously, whilst he's giving this kind of soliloquy, he's saying, like, it's fun to kill people, you should try it sometime. And he pulls a weapon from under his pillow. Some sort of crowbar, I'm not quite sure. Can I crowbar a tire this? iron pull, oh, actually, right, okay. fittingly. Tony finally shoots him. Great foley here, wonderful, thick, low sound from the bullet. I loved it. Although he does shoot Ray a couple of times, Ray manages to strike him on the head with the tire flax iron. Flax him, yeah, flax him on the head. So they're both down for the count. Somebody's got to die. Reveal, who is it? Tony wakes up, doesn't he, about dawn with a vicious head wound. I think Ray's dead. He's bled out on the floor. Tony staggers outside into the desert sun and winds up falling on the ground and dying. I think he lets his gun... He fires his gun, doesn't he, to, to attract to attract the attention of Bobby, maybe. But he's, he's dead, as we understand. Cut to the real world. <laughs> <laughs> Having finished the story and putting it down, Susan is remembering sleeping with Edward, isn't she? She's mm. reminiscing. And she gets a text from him. She's been texting him, agreeing to meet her. She gets dolled up, puts on a nice evening gown, Mm -hmm. and gets ready with uh, killer looks and stuff. She goes to a restaurant, but, like, she gets stood up. Like, no no one turns up, right? So she's just sat at the restaurant on her own. And that is the end. Depressing end. uh, The climax, as it were, (laughs) of this dreary, miserable movie. What does it all mean? So I took this to mean we are all moved by fictions. Yeah. Oh. And relationships are an act of melodramatic deception and self-deception. Is that what it's about? The fact that when we seek justice in relationships, we'll just imagine ourselves in a narrative that doesn't really exist. I'm left with the feeling that the novel is perhaps a lot more <laughs> meaningful than the film. Yeah. For instance, the abortion was an addition to the film, or oh. I don't think it was in the novel. And I, I thought that was quite a misogynistic thing to put in the film. In fact, it seems very conservative, actually. It seems very anti-abortion misogyny, doesn't it? 
it seems to paint Susan in a very poor light that she's taken it upon herself to. Well, we're not supposed to be really sympathetic to her. She's, I mean, she's. I mean, yeah, I agree. I mean, the fact that she's quite hateful in other respects, it kind of all ties in as a nucleus or a cluster of things you don't like about Susan. And I think we're supposed to chime in with, yeah, and she got an abortion too. So yeah, I'm not quite sure what that's doing there. This entire movie is like an incels kind of sort of manifesto. It's like the story is sort of from the point of view of a character we see very little of, which is Mm. this shadowy Edward guy, whom we're led to understand is the nice guy, the sensitive guy, but he's not going to win the girl because he's well, not ambitious uh, yes, enough. It's reaffirming this narrative that women don't choose a nice guy. That's not true, is it? And she's punished for not doing that. Uh, punishment is she ends up, after having an abortion, she ends up in a, a loveless marriage with a guy who doesn't really love her and is cheating on her. She's not happy in a job. She's clearly, although she's in the art world, which perhaps she might like, she's actually quite disdainful mm. of it. So there's a sub-narrative. If women try to choose what they want in relationships... None of this works. Yeah, they have to go for true love. And they can't decide to do anything else. Otherwise, they're going to be bitterly disappointed and hurt more than, more than men are. Yeah, there's a lot of that hanging around there, isn't there? It's weird. And then this novel within the book is a very ordinary like crime drama about a kind of crime which I'm sure must happen, but it's pretty rare. Well, these days, I mean, the prints these days would just be like, fingerprints are enough these days, aren't they? So. But uh, it's not very believable, is it? Right? They're in the middle of West Texas, right? These three guys pull over a random stranger's car mm. and they don't have guns, not wielding guns. How probable is that? <laughs> well, I think, I think the idea was that it's set in a non-specific time, isn't it? Europe. Right. They have cell phones. I mean, the idea that highways don't have at least one cam on them every 10 miles to monitor number plates is ridiculous these days, isn't it? I don't know that that's true in Texas. Is it not? Yeah, it's, it is a different kind of vast, isn't it? Yeah, hmm. and Americans are quite wary of the Big Brother nature of surveillance of that kind, aren't they? Here's the other story that goes through this, though: is there's a kind of gun story, isn't there? Hmm. Like initially, the cop asks him, "Did they have guns?" I think part of that is a tacit criticism that he didn't fight for his family. He could have had a go because mm-hmm. they didn't have guns. Why don't you just fight? There is a lot of primitivist male honour systems hanging around here, isn't there? It's all interesting. Also, there were three of them, right? They might have had a go. It's not an obvious overmatch, is it? They could probably have had a go. Leaving that aside, it's a fictional novel in a fictional story. I don't know why I care. It just didn't seem very believable, the whole thing. But also, it's not very interesting. I don't know why Susan was so into the whole story. What happened? Nothing. Not, there's no real police procedural well, it's stuff. Well, having deep parallels with their lives, but I just couldn't recognise them at all, <laughs> unfortunately. Even now, having spoken about it for an hour, I just don't see the parallels. So. And the end is well, like... Was the Apex a- Twins resonance? Was the resonance turned up to a, a level of distortion that we no longer <laughs> recognise the parallels, perhaps? The end reads like the kind of fantasy that pro-gun advocates have. They're gonna they're gonna find themselves in a situation where they can take revenge for something and there'd be no consequences. In this case, a, a cop with terminal lung cancer has given him sort of carte blanche to do whatever he likes. And die with this criminal. Death, you know. We'll come to that. But the point is the idea that there'll be a circumstance where you can just you're just gonna be able to shoot somebody and get away with it without the ramifications is a crazy fantasy that a lot of pro-gun advocates seem to have, don't they? They seem to think they're going to be able to be the hero at some point, or if they're in the right place at the right time, they can pull their gun out and be the, the hero. Whereas the likelihood is 
they're more likely to be killed by their own gun by criminals Mm -hmm. nicking it off them or be shot by the police who think they're a criminal. As you say, maybe the maybe the novelist of the novel was aware of this and he wrote this tragic ending where the guy gets killed anyway. Perhaps he's not a pro-gun nut. Perhaps it's his critique of that. I don't know. But again, it's difficult to tell because there's a novel within a novel, isn't it? It's fictional within the fictional world. It's one step removed. Is it supposed to be a trashy novel? Are we supposed to assume that Edward, Edward, you know, is this ne'er-do-well, is this unambitious kind of wimp who's written a really bad novel. But it's not presented <laughs> like that, is it? Not really, no. The quality of the novel perhaps is irrelevant. It's really that Susan has, it's just reminiscing about her real romantic love that she abandoned. But unfortunately, the, the story in the novel was much more engaging than Susan's circumstance or predicament, <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah, and... <laughs> in any case, we only get 20 minutes of Susan, we get, we get 60 minutes of the novel, do you know what I mean? So it wasn't balanced it, it, towards Susan's favourite to her to take central, pivotal stance in, in the movie itself. And the climax of the film, outside of the novel in the novel, is that this woman, Susan, who we are not supposed to be sympathetic with and I suppose will want to get her comeuppance kind of thing, what eventually ends up happening is she gets stood up for a date. <laughs> Maybe she finds that upsetting, but it's not that big a deal, is it? It's, she lives in a it's, hollow world anyway, so the confirmation that the world is hollow... Maybe that's going to be a, 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 a saving saving grace in the end. So, yeah, she doesn't really get a comeuppance in any sense, does she? It's a very small D drama, isn't it? It doesn't do yes. very much. Hmm. Interesting, but uh, perplexing and somewhat worrying, maybe at the same time. I didn't like this film, i got to say. Whoa. Okay, well... Let's do acting. Right, first of all, can I just get a little tidbit in here? Oh. Okay. Casper No, or Casper Noe, or Gasper, even. Okay. What's he got to do with this film? Uh, one of his movies, Love which involves lots of non-simulated sex. Okay. Stars. Non-simulated. Stars the guy who played... Lou. Lou, the hoodlum, in this movie. Okay. Gaspar Noe, who we saw Climax and reviewed in a previous episode, and we've been wanting to see at least one of his other films called Enter the Void. Watch that space. We might be talking about it in a second. Okay, so, yeah, the acting, I... I loved the reprise of like your archetypal Texacama kind of cop. Kind of cliched, but at the same time he pulled it off. Okay, I didn't really get Susan's midlife angst, to be honest with you. She's hella rich. Plenty of divertisements that she can follow. She can get herself a toy boy if she was that vapid. I didn't really, didn't really buy the idea that she's so genuine. Do you know what I mean? She didn't come across, but maybe that's not an acting issue. That's just scripting. The rest of it, I mean, the Hulums were fairly convincing in the story within the story. And everybody else was just a little bit kind of washed out on rainy day, not really quite there, I think, as characters. So I'm going to score it a six for the acting, Richard. It's one thing about this film, isn't it? It's all the actors look a million dollars. I may have mentioned this early on. Mm. They all look incredibly good looking. So, But I think that might be a weakness of this film, right? Because I think maybe in the novel you're supposed to think that Edward maybe isn't all that. Maybe he's not that good looking. He's sensitive, yeah, and she might fall in love with him. But perhaps... Hutton is a more dashing and attractive kind of guy, superficially. Maybe that comes across in the novel. In the film, the problem is Edward is played by Jake Gyllenhaal, for goodness sake. <laughs> Some of the reviews that I read about this referred to the cinema, like all the girls gasping when Jake Gyllenhaal is in the shower. <laughs> oh, God. It, it seems like Susan is spoiled for choice, right? Mm-hmm. You know, She's got the sensitive but astonishingly sexy Jake Gyllenhaal 
or the astonishingly sexy Hudson Army Hammer. It's was this just? Choice, yeah. I mean, did Tom just make a look good but not feel good movie here? It certainly didn't make anybody feel good, did it? So you're saying it's a triumph of style over substance, of form over function, of madness over method, and rhyme over reason. It's an artsy movie. But I have to give I have to give credit to the acting because the actors were doing the best. So I'll I'll go for a seven for this. Whoa! Okay. By the way, Amy Adams, of course, we saw way back in episode one of Drive by Cinema because she was the star of. Arrival, Denis Villeneuve, director of Dune and Dune 2. Do you remember his aliens visit us and they're all squids and they talk in coffee cup shaped stage? It's an important linguistic concept that he played one side of. (laughs) The idea, what was it? Uh, Because they talk in a non-linear fashion that they see time in a different way. What's the idea that ideas are constructed out of our language? Oh, the sapir-whorf hypothesis. Yes. Yeah. He took a very one-sided view of that. Didn't he? So, sorry, Amy. It seems that you keep choosing movies that we don't like. But, I mean, but all, all credit to Dennis. Okay, some wonderful things with Dune. Out on March the 1st, if you, if, if you told me right, Richard. Dune 2 will be out March mm-hmm. the 1st, yes. So, obviously, we'll have to review that. Redheads or not. Okay, so, plotting. Yeah, plot. I just didn't like the way it dipped in and out of the real fictional world into the story fictional world. And it wasn't balanced and there was no connection. Okay, I, I actually didn't mind the quite hackneyed Texas <laughs> kind of road rage murder murder plot it was okay I thought it was a little sub story a little cracker to open a Christmas meal the Christmas meal itself was so disappointing do you know what I mean it's like a good half an hour TV show isn't it or something yeah like but I it's... mean a Christmas cracker is not going to make up for a really dry turkey <laughs> is it do you know what I mean I'm sorry, Susan's story was just a dry turkey. Like, the little half-hour treat inside, the, the Rosalind Krantz and Gildenstein inside the movie, I would score it an eight. But Susan's dry turkey, I'm sorry. Altogether, it's got to be 4.5 for the plot. Yeah, I, I was going to go for... It's just a nasty plot with few redeeming features. I don't understand the point of a pointless crime drama that doesn't really resolve anything or go anywhere other than it's sort of justice porn, but not really because everybody dies. Everybody dies. Even the policeman ends up dead with lung cancer, presumably. And the love story, as it is, also doesn't work, doesn't click. But maybe I'm the wrong audience, Paul. Maybe it's for somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's not me. It wasn't for me either. Well, we've done plot, we've done acting. What can else we think we of another category or can we just go straight to general scores? We can do know. overall, can't we? Because it's almost <sighs> undefinable in genre, isn't it? Yeah. it as a noir film. Oh, okay. Work as a noir Let's film? do noir. Okay. okay. Did it hit the noir buttons? It didn't have like an, a voiceover, a narrative. Had a motel. I had a motel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did it? Yeah. He stays at a motel after he's like uh, went to the police station. Had a motel. Noir always needs motels, doesn't it? It had a hard bitten cop. Yeah. With a tragic backstory. And it had desert isolation, but it wasn't really scary, was it? No. Uh, noir. It only gets a six point five for its noirness for me. I'll give it a five for noir. Okay. Now we can score this mother. Overall, I've got to give it a three. I did not like. Whoa, like whoa, Richard! He didn't even get up the hill. The roller coaster never set off. <laughs> didn't get to that five. Okay. Look, it's right. competently made. You're right. The crime bits are probably the best bits. They are, aren't they? Perhaps this is desi- designed to appeal to women. Maybe mm-hmm. is that a sexist thing to say? But maybe they like the true crimey nature of a fictional crime. Just insert it at random. Maybe they some really like seeing Jake people, Gyllenhaal yeah. getting his kit off. I'm sure there's a great deal to be said for that. But Oh, I see what you're saying. 
I don't know. It, I, I can't put myself in the shoes of someone who might get a lot out of this. It was depressing at best. You're saying it's like Shania Twain, but movie. It's like a Shania Twain music video, but like a movie length. It's very country and western, isn't it? That's always about like terrible things happening. So what? You're Brad Pitt. Woohoo! <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, isn't it? It's, El- it's Elmer and Louise, isn't it? I guess, but not just as good. No. So th- yeah, exactly. Oh, without, and a feminist, was... without a feminist message either. Yeah. 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 Right, okay, and Brad did look good in that, didn't he, with his little cowboy hat. Right, okay, so overall you scored it what, Richard? Three. I give it a three. Is that your lowest score ever? No, not but quite. It could be. Yeah, it's close. I've added up my average, uh, my scores, which aren't really categories. Well, the categories kind of fell apart in there today. It is more than five, but I'm just going to go straight on the middle of five for this one. It's not. I don't think it's as bad as you say. I'm going to have to disagree on this. It's bad, but it's not that bad. So who would you recommend to see it, Paul? Nobody. No. <laughs> yeah, I think the problem is, it, I mean, what's it trying to say? It's really not clear. Is it trying to say anything at all? I don't think it is even, is it? I don't know what it's yeah, just... So if it's not trying to say anything, we have to judge it purely on entertainment value. Yes. Uh, which is either enjoyment or kind of thrill factor. And it doesn't really have either of those. So yeah, a very middling five for me. Whew. Okay. Well, just we've already our tipped off. our hand to a possible film we next week. Indeed. Richard Gasper now is Enter the Void. Throw them at me. Okay, what are my choices, Richard? Am I choosing or are you choosing? I think it's your choice. It I is. I think I chose Nocturnal Animals. For you my did sins. indeed. So it is my choice. Okay, first one Enter the Void. Yeah. Gasper or Gasper, I don't know how you say that. No, no way. Since you mentioned it, we could also throw in his other one which has real sex in it called Love. Love. We watched another movie with uh, real sex in, a gay couple, do you remember? As the third leg comes in. What <laughs> was that? Short bus, was that? Could have been, I don't know. And here's an alternative called The Invitation. Invitation. Mm-hmm. Do you want a fourth? There's a third one, isn't this? You mentioned it before the start. Speak No Evil? Is that the fourth? The final one, the fourth one is Speak No Evil, uh-huh. which is a strongly European one. About about what? About a Danish family visiting a Dutch family, or vice oh, versa. Oh, wow. like, like twin towns, like exchanges, like language exchange kind of stuff. Brilliant. That sounds lovely. Documentary style. Well, I'm not going to choose Speak No Evil, Richard. Although, I okay. see. You okay. might want to actually want to watch that. I'm going to go bear for... In mind, bear oh. in mind, we've got, again, we've got a strong American listenership this month, Paul. Maybe that might sway your decision here. We don't have... Oh, you mean... I think the invitation is American, actually. Oh. oh it's not no, what uh, I wanted to go for, Richard. Oh, right. Well, no, ignore me then. Yeah, I wanted to go for Gaspar Noe, Enter the Void. Cause Enter I, the Void. Yeah. Okay. Finally I available on streaming Wanted to see this for a long time. Yeah. I think it does have themes of being dead, though. So it oh. might not be, it might not be not depressing. Okay, we'll so see. we need to, we need to make a, we need to be, have a conviction that maybe the next movie we choose isn't gonna be terrifyingly depressing. Okay. <laughs> okay. After next week, where we will be reviewing Enter the Void. Enter the Void. Come join us into that terrifying journey. Until then, goodbye. Ciao for now. See you on the next one.